Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bibles at the end of each row. That passage is on page 530. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that. That is our gift to you. We're continuing in our series, our brief series that we've begun for the beginning of summer. And this will be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Twenty years ago this summer, NASA decided to shoot for the moon. And they did so by sending um, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins on a 240,000-mile flight to the moon for the first ever moon landing. Apollo 11 took three days to make it to the moon. Over 400,000 people helped put that mission together with only two of those guys ended up walking on the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin. And sure enough, on July 20th, 1969, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong executed the moon landing using a lunar module called the Eagle. Now, we all know the story of how uh, Armstrong stepped off of the Eagle and onto the, onto the moon and said that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. But what many of us don't know about is the harrowing 13 minutes right before they landed uh, that almost uh, made that trip a, a non-entity. Approaching the moon, Aldrin and uh, Armstrong in the Eagle ran into a sequence of really scary problems. The radio communications between Eagle and Earth broke down so they couldn't hear each other at various points. The lunar module was going too fast so much so that it was overshooting its target site. Moreover, they were running out of fuel faster than they anticipated. And worst of all, the onboard computer started flashing error codes that the astronauts had never seen before and had no idea what they meant despite all their training. You got to understand the computer is crucial for any return back to the mothership as well as to Earth itself. Armstrong, the commander, radioed to NASA that they had this error code, 1202, and didn't know whether the landing was a go or a no-go. 
flight control, even worse, had no idea either what the error code was. It was a very tense couple of moments until it happened. A 26-year-old engineer named Steve Bales remembered seeing the obscure error during some of their work and preparations. And the error simply meant that the computer was working overtime trying to figure out how to land, where to land, coordinates and all that stuff, but it was still working. It wasn't shutting down. It was just doing its job. With everyone on edge, Bale spoke up with those famous words, we are a go flight, meaning everything was a go to go ahead and land. We shot for the moon, and in a very tense moment, a happy word, we are a go flight, made the rest history. Today in Acts chapter 1, we're looking at another kind of amazing moment in history and in the history of the world and the history of even Christianity itself where a very different kind of shooting for the moon takes place. It's a shooting for the mission of God around the world. This chapter is really a, another one of those peak moments in the Bible where all the Bible matters and all that it teaches matters, but this is one of those highlighting moments where, where Jesus calls us in the church to shoot for the moon and mission for him. So we find Jesus here in this transitional part of his life and ministry when he speaks to the apostles during that 40-day span between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. There was 40 days that he roamed the earth with uh, his disciples in that time. And in between this time, we're going to see how Jesus talks to the disciples then and how he talks to us now about our call to be witnesses in his mission for him. And he does it in this text by saying, we are a go, flight. We are a go to do mission by being witnesses for Christ or the gospel. So, just a quick reminder, we're in a three-part vision series. These, these three weeks, we're in the middle one today on higher, deeper, broader. We're hitting the broader theme today. Josh will do it, the, the deeper theme next week. And our major questions coming out of this are going to be this. What is the purpose or mission of the church, even SCPC, according to Jesus? And what does it look like for SCPC to shoot for the moon in mission? What does that look like for us, especially over the next few years? So you're going to find in your bulletin uh, and a general outline, and you're going to find on the screens of, of the bulletin, uh, the outline, as well as some details coming up through it. So, so here we go. Here's our overall outline. Christ uh, begins his ministry by preaching the gospel. Uh, Christ equips us for ministry, and Christ commissions us to reach broader for the kingdom. So let's dive into our text. Uh, Christ is, is setting us up, or rather Luke is setting us up here in the very first parts of the mission in verses 1 through 2. Let's look at that together. Here's what Luke says. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that is, at his ascension, after he had given commands through the Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke is writing this book as a historian, and he's writing the history of Jesus and the history of the church in Acts itself. 
And he's writing in particular what had happened in all the sequence of events in the story of salvation with Christ. In a few verses here in our text, he reviews the story of Jesus, basically. He gives this broad a brush overview, talking about effectively how Jesus was born in the world, he lived a righteous life, uh, he preached the gospel, uh, he ended up dying on the cross for you and for me in our sin, he was resurrected from the dead, and eventually he's ascended. It sounds a little bit like an overview of the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with that. Luke takes this part of Acts to explain where we start as the church. And here's how it goes. The church doesn't start with a pastor or the people. The church starts with a gigantic Savior named Jesus. That's what he's getting at. So there are a few points to review about what he's saying in this text. And the first verses tell us something about the book of Acts itself. Luke mentions a first book. You see that in the very first phrase. The first book he's talking about is the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke talks about Jesus and his life and ministry and how he works out our salvation. Acts talks about how that shows up in the church right after his ascension. You've got to understand, Luke and Acts are like a two-volume series from, uh, from Luke, if you will, two-volume history series in some ways. Moreover, did you notice... He talks to a guy and is writing to a guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is more than likely a Gentile name, is a Gentile person. And uh, he calls him back in Luke 1, most excellent Theophilus. Now, that kind of title in that time meant he was a person of influence, a person likely of importance in the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to a very important person in this way. Flip real quick with me back to Luke 1, where we find out why he writes to Theophilus. Why Luke writes to Theophilus. Now, those of you not familiar with Scripture, Luke 1 is to the left. You keep turning left in the Bible, and you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Luke's right in there with the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In Luke 1, we are told what actually is Luke's very purpose in writing to this guy, Theophilus. And this matters to what we're talking about today. Look at this. He says, It seemed good to me, in verse 3 of chapter 1, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that, and here's his purpose, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty is his purpose in writing this. Certainty. What's the big deal about certainty? Why is that so important? Well, apparently, Theophilus, among others in the Roman Empire, struggled with skepticism, doubt. They wondered if this Jesus thing was for real, was true, and so Theophilus uh, needs uh, Luke to explain more clearly and more precisely what actually happened with Jesus. Luke sets out to address skeptics, doubters. And this already applies to our mission right here at SCPC. As the mission of the church, we want to actively reach the skeptics and the doubters of our time. We do it with the historic truth that comes right out of Scripture itself about Jesus, but we also do it 
uh, in a way that's relational with people. Did you notice that it highlights that Theophilus is a man of influence, the most excellent? That means that the gospel not only goes to the average Joe, but it shows up even in the halls of influence, even in that time. What that means is the gospel goes to everyone, not just our people. It goes to all kinds of people, even unexpected people who might be interested in the gospel. If you're a skeptic here today, I want to tell you that we are glad you're here and that it is very appropriate to bring your questions, your wounds, even your questions about church and all of its craziness, as Jesus is Lord of that as well. I can tell you personally, as someone who grew up with a lot of doubts and skepticism, I did not grow up in a Christian home, uh, that in my doubts, I said things like, yeah, the Bible is just another good book. You know, the irony of that, of course, is I'm up here preaching to you, right? More than that is I can tell you that Christ provides answers in Scripture through his gospel that can help you see who he is. In fact, I would say this. At SEPC, we want to encourage everyone, both those who are exploring the Christian faith or really have honest questions, and those who've been walking with Jesus a long time, to doubt their doubts. To doubt their doubts. To actually, when you're thinking, there's no way this Jesus thing can be for real, to doubt your doubts for just a moment. Suspend judgment and ask what might be true about Jesus and explore that. We want to help you with that. Moreover, if you're a, a Christian today and you're thinking, I tell you what, when I share my faith, I run into all kinds of things with people and the, the pushback, and I don't, they'll ask all kinds of questions I, I don't know the answer to. Well, here's what I'd tell you to do. You ready? I could give you all kinds of apologetic answers, all kinds of things, like, but here's the most effective thing I can tell you. Be skeptical about skepticism. When you're presented with skepticism, ask the questions about what assumptions are there. What do you assume about Jesus and about Christianity in the church? Sometimes behind the question is an assumption. In fact, most of the time it is. I can tell you that, doing a lot of outreach through the years. Be skeptical about the skepticism. Be bold to just ask, is what you assume about Jesus true? Let people wrestle with that. So, that brings us to a larger question. How do we know then, when there is skepticism and questions, uh, where, uh, whether assumptions are true or not? How can we know? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 1.1. He says this, he says, uh, We start with all that Jesus began to do and teach found in Scripture. We start with Jesus, the historic and resurrected person. You know, it's always striking to me when the world says Jesus was just kind of a mythical figure. He's meant to be an inspiring, a literary figure, maybe an amalgam of various heroes so that we can just be inspired. But I would tell you, even uh, historians in the first century didn't think that. Tacitus, among other Roman historians, actually uh, talked about Jesus in their writings. Guys named Josephus and Philo, Jewish historians talked about Jesus very openly in their writings. They talked like he was a real person who lived in Palestine 
2,000 years ago, they thought he was real, and they lived in a contemporary setting with him. The truth of the matter is Jesus was a real person. And if he's a real person, here's the beauty of what that means for us. You and I can interact with him. You and I can know him. In fact, that's the point of the resurrection. He's alive and a living Lord so that we can be in a living relationship with the Christ who lives. This is our hope as Christians. Jesus is alive and we can know him and be rescued by this living Lord at the same time. So, we start with what Jesus says, who he is, or excuse me, we start with who he is, and, but we also look at what he did. We believe the Son of God left the glories of heaven to come to our world as a man. And you know what's kind of cool about that? He entered our world quite unlike most gods throughout history. Most gods would never, and all the gods that have come through history would not. But what Christianity teaches is that the holiest God of all sent his son to walk into our world and meet us where we are. He didn't say, hey, you all, if you want to get your act straight, you come to me. That's what all the other gods of the world say. Perform, please. What Christianity says is something far different. Here's what it says. You can't perform for God. You can't get it right for God. God has to get it right for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to rescue you and me. And his words and his life are the gospel itself for us that we share. We talk about a real person, not an inspiring figure merely. This is the starting point for our mission as a church. Our vision is to make our church and our outreach efforts gospel-centered. You've heard of the church that is purpose-driven. You've heard of the church that is staff-driven in some cases. How about we be a church that is gospel-driven, that we pursue making Jesus and his message the center of what we do? And here's why we do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it really well. The gospel says this, that Jesus is the only way people can be rescued from themselves, from each other, and from death. Christ is the only way to be rescued. There is no other way. That's what Christianity says. There is no other way. Christ has come to rescue us because there is no other way. And you got to know, as I spend time in South Charlotte, this is my home, South Charlotte, where I was born and raised. But it's grown a lot in the last 50 years of my life. And what I've learned talking to the people through the years is this. Christianity is often about ethics. It's about morality. It's about how to have the good life. Christianity, in other words, is an option among other options of how you can have a good life. All you need to do is have ethics. I even have a friend who told me this this past week. Christianity is all about ethics. If we just get rid of the Jesus stuff and we just pull in all the good ideas like love and things like that and maybe add a few other religious good ideas, then we'll have moral evolution. I kid you not, that's what he's talking about. And we will be a better people as a whole. But here's the thing I'd tell you. 
he misses the point of Christianity. It's not about mere morality. It's about grace. It's about God doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves on the cross. What Jesus did to rescue you and me, that's the heart and soul of Christianity. Do, do morals matter in Christianity? Do ethics matter? Yes. But you've got to understand the core of it, the gospel core, is Jesus saved us by grace. He did it out of his own goodness and kindness to us. So, this is what we want to be about as a church, all within the first verse of this text. That's what we're finding. So, I want you to notice something. It's an application for you and for me here today. Did you notice that he says in this first verse that uh, he, he, uh, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see that? began. He uses that word specifically because his implication is, and what he tells his apostles next, you're going to continue the work that I started. You're going to do what I have done in my ministry in word and deed. And sure enough, that's what they do. They go out and they reproduce Christ's ministry and do what he taught and do what he did. Now, what this means for us as a church is very simple. We are called to continue the work of Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? That actually the church is you and me continuing the work of Jesus in not just church, but in our communities, in our uh, workplaces, wherever we're uh, professionals, in our schools. You name it, we're to reproduce the ministry of Jesus. So much so that you know the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles in Greek. Some have suggested that the actual name of the book should be the Acts of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit through the apostles. The works of Jesus. And that includes you and me. The Holy Spirit and God working through us as we reproduce Christ's ministry. What will that look like as a church as we go on the next year? Let's dive in some vision real quick. We want to reproduce children's ministry in a way that we share the gospel with our kids. Our first mission field is with our children and with our youth. And so we want to get the gospel out to our children and our youth and build our children's ministry. Lord willing, we're going to actually start a children's worship this coming sometime this coming year so that we can uh, build on what uh, has already been begun. Next, we're going to have meetup groups. What's a meetup group? Is anybody familiar with a meetup group? You know what that is? <laughs> meetup groups are a great way where you find something in common and you get together and talk about it. I think we can come up with meetup groups that you may dream of or I may dream of. One thing I think we definitely need here in the Ballantyne, South Charlotte area is a meetup group for business people where they can talk about leadership in an honest and real way. Rather than having to perform and fix it on their own and kind of hide when they're struggling in their vocations, they can come and talk about it. That, among other things, are what we're going to try in the next year. And finally, I would like for all of us today to consider doing something more regularly together. That two or three or four families at a time would invite 
newer folks who come to SCPC, maybe a few times, invite them out to, to lunch, invite them to your home, and invite them to your life group. Invite them into your life. And you know why I say that? Because that doesn't happen anymore, even in church. To have the courage. Now, I know right now all of my introverts are going crazy, right? You guys, your little radars are going nuts as I suggest this. Here's what I tell you. Walk by faith, not by sight. Dare to be bold. I'm an introvert too. Yeah, I know you find that hard to believe, but it's true. Dare to be bold. We, Jesus calls us as the church, like SPC, to continue his work of getting the gospel out to skeptics and to the theophiluses of the world, inviting people into our lives. Now, at this point, when I say talking about doing some of these things as a church, doing outreach, among other things, a lot of you would go, man, this feels too big. I'm a little scared. I don't think I'm competent to do this. No doubt. We all struggle with a competency question. But you know what happens? Jesus talks about this in our text in verses 4 and 5. Look at that with me. Jesus talks about this. This is so cool. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, that is apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's what's going on in this amazing text. Jesus tells the apostles he has a job for them to do. He wants them to do outreach in his name, reproduce his ministry in their own unique ways. But at the same time, he tells them to go and wait in Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? Well, if we go throughout Scripture, the Gospels, among other places, you'll find the promise of the Father is one of the ways we describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. To wait for the Holy Spirit to fill them. The Holy Spirit is a gift that God gives to dwell within us. And he, Jesus that is, knows that disciples like you and me and those guys in the first century can't do this mission on our own. Now, I know us guys, us American guys, like, yeah, let's go take the hill. Let's go do outreach. Let's try this. But I say, no, <laughs> that's exactly what the apostles wanted to do in their own flesh. <laughs> Actually, what you want to do is wait on the Spirit to fill you and build you. And what's interesting is Jesus is telling them to go back into Jerusalem and to wait. Uh, Jerusalem's a dangerous place. They just killed Jesus and crucified him. Wait in a place that's hostile to Christianity? Do you see why you and I need the Holy Spirit in an age where if you're a Christian, you see things turning in our culture away from Christianity very clearly? When we live in a hostile culture, you need the Holy Spirit to fill you. Now, Jesus uses the language of baptism in this text. Did you see that? He uses the language of baptism in the text. And the implication is this. God gives us the Holy Spirit by baptizing us. And baptism, if you want to put it in this way, is like this. It's the initial gift of the Spirit that we encounter when we become a Christian that both cleanses our sin and empowers us. 
cleanses and empowers. We believe in our church that you're baptized once in the Spirit, but you're filled multiple times. That first filling is called the baptism of the Spirit. And God, as a result, empowers us to serve him. Look, it's not just enough for God to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. He also mobilizes us to serve him in our daily walks, in our families, in our work. Yes, together as a church as well. And there's no surprise that Jesus would highlight the baptism of the Spirit. After all, that's what happened to Jesus too. Do you remember? Matthew chapter 3 Jesus gets baptized by John in a water baptism, which is an outward sign of what happens. And then as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit lights on him like a dove and fills him so that he can do ministry. Now, he's the Son of God, and he's getting baptized in the Spirit. If he needs it, how much more you and I need it together? What's this got to do with SCPC? When I say let's do mission and then we start into it and we run into resistance, let's do mission and it feels too big, let's do mission and it feels too scary, here's what we say together, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength in the Holy Spirit. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength in the Holy Spirit. What we want you to do at SCPC, for those who are members and attenders, is we want you to use your spiritual gifts to build the kingdom. What is your spiritual gift? How can you contribute to the church? What is it the Holy Spirit has stirred you to do both in empowering you and in actually calling you to a ministry with the church? We want, to we want to encourage you to that end. But here's the main thing to know. You shouldn't do it alone. This is what I see a million times in the evangelical church. One person will get on fire for Jesus. The Spirit will stir them about doing ministry. And they'll say, I'm going to go do this. Hey, everybody, I'm going to do this for Jesus. And it fails. You know why? Because Jesus put us together to do it together, not by ourselves. You can't do ministry on your own. You need each other to do it. Work as the team. And, and think about how we can reach the gospel, our community with the gospel in ways that I can't even come up with because I need you to help me see. Second, don't miss this about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do want to mention this. We at SCPC want to be about healthy spirituality and serve God with character. What do I mean? Well, before the use of the gifts of the Spirit comes the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. We live in a world where leadership, where competency is all based on does it work. Christianity says, is it holy? That is what we want to pursue, is not only serving with the gifts of the Spirit, but also with the fruit of the Spirit as God fills us. During the reign of Queen Victoria in the 19th century, an extraordinary thing took place. For four years, 
Emperor Theodore of Ethiopia held a group of 53 European captives, adults, children, and yes, even missionaries, on a 9,000-foot-high bastion prison deep in the interior of Ethiopia. Queen Victoria multiple times pleaded with, with King Theodore to let the people go, um, that she would come and get them. Through ambassadors and a whole host, she exhausted all means to try and get the 53 captives. So you know what she did? She sent in a full-scale military expedition to rescue 53 people. The invasion force included 32,000 troops, heavy artillery. They pulled in 44 elephants to actually move all the hardware. Provisions included 50,000 tons of beef. Man, that's a lot of meat. And you're going to like this, 30,000 gallons of rum. The military engineers built piers, water treatment plants, railroads, bridges, and telegraph lines as they made their way into the interior. They finally got to the prison, and here's what they did. They fought one battle and won against King Theodore and his army. And in so winning, they rescued 53 hostages in the same way. We at SCPC are a rescue mission. We gather people and financial resources so we can go out and do the work of the gospel. And even, I think here in Ballantyne, South Charlotte, we gather financial resources so we can give them away proactively to missions locally and around the world. God has been so good, he gives to us so that we can give to the church. And so we encourage, and this is primarily for the members and regular attenders of SCPC, we encourage you to study the all-things study that we've been working on together. Spend time together as a family around the table over dinner. Maybe you do it in your own quiet times or whatever. Study through this as we talk about generosity and how we can build a culture of generosity in this church giving resources for kingdom growth both within SCPC and, yes, even more outside of SCPC. Let's shoot for the moon financially as a church. So, we remember the gospel ministry Jesus began. He calls us to continue that mission, and we have hope that we're equipped in the Holy Spirit to actually carry out that mission. That brings us to the final point of our text in verse, uh, verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to highlight just verse 8 right now. Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. Jesus says two basic things here. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can serve. And I just want to say this. Do you know who Jesus is talking to? He's talking to a bunch of blue-collar guys. Maybe a few scholar types, a few former uh, politicians. And he's telling them, I'm going to empower you so that later on in Acts 17, the Bible says, 
people accuse them of turning the world upside down. Why does that matter? If you feel small, if you feel like you can't make a difference or you don't make an impact real easily, you're not that talented, well, that's exactly where the disciples, the apostles were. And remember, these were the, the goofballs who would say things like, uh, we want to be in charge at your right hand, Jesus, or they'd be fighting among themselves who would be the boss. And Jesus tells them, through the Holy Spirit, you're actually going to change the world. That's what he does. And not only does he tell them to change the world, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about Jesus. You're going to tell people about me around the world. And what I love about that is that really it gets to the heart of our mission in so many ways that we are called to do outreach among God's people and among our community with the gospel. This is the primary focus of the church. I'm going to say a radical thing like that. If you were to ask, what's the mission of the church? I'm going to say, this is it, Acts 1.8. It sums it up really well. And you know why I can say that versus all the other things that Jesus says? Because in Jesus' last days, those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, he says the following in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. In Mark, preach the gospel to all nations. In Luke, he says, you will be my witnesses yet again. In John, he says, feed my sheep. Yes, even the lost sheep. Do you think he's trying to say something in those last days before he left the earth? He was. It's the primary mission he sends us out on even today. In his case, he's got this grand vision of shooting for the moon to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Are you kidding me? I mean, who has visions like that? I'll tell you who. Someone who's ruling at the right hand of God the Father right now and is spreading the gospel all over the world over the last 2,000 years, who has the power to change hearts, who has the power in the Holy Spirit to even use you and me with our hospitality, with our words, with our deeds, even through our brokenness, somehow redeem the world by his power. See, Jesus shot for the moon. Because he's big enough to do the job. Now he asks us to, stop, to walk with him. And to even reach broader. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you shot for the moon and you saved us. And we ask you to fill this church, Lord, with the Holy Spirit in a way that, Lord, we could go forward and actually build your kingdom together. And granted, Lord, there are things about doing church planning and mission that are challenging, that are hard, that are disappointing. We wish for better or more. We, we're, we, we all often come with our expectations, but we pray that we would trust that you're moving in our midst and you have the power to change us, the power to change our church, and even a community when we show up, show up with the gospel show up with our lives wherever we live, and do this together in Jesus' name. Amen.